Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 11th of November 2022, from the news section, Dundee Trade Union visit to Twin City in Palestine ends in detainment by Laura Pollock. Dundee Trade Union representatives were detained and interrogated for two hours on Wednesday as they tried to leave Israel after a visit to Palestine. The group arrived at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv following a visit to Dundee's twin town Nabulus in Palestine. They were stopped by security and immediately identified as the Dundee Trade Union delegation. Mike Arnott of Dundee Trade Union Congress, Jim Malone of the Fire Brigade Union, Dundee Councillor Pete Shears and Mary McGregor convener of the Dundee slash Nambulus Twinning Association, were all detained. The delegation was to fly in from Tel Aviv to Milan, then on to Edinburgh. The group were questioned at passport control before being allowed to check in their baggage and proceeded to security. Their boarding passes were then flagged and they were consequently refused permission to board the plane to Milan before being interrogated. Shears was acting in his capacity as political officer for the Communication Workers Unions, Edinburgh, Dundee and Borders branch. He described the agent questioning him as getting very visibly frustrated as his attempts to catch us out failed. Shears added that he and the group were accused of lying about the purpose of the trip. He said, I was singled out for questioning by a very aggressive member of the authorities who repeatedly accused me of lying while lying himself by saying he'd seen a printed itinerary of our visit, which has never been created. The purpose of the week-long visit was to sign a historical solidarity and cooperation agreement between Dundee's Trade Union and the General Union Council of Palestine Labour Unions, PGFTU. The Fire Brigade Union also announced a donation of a new fire engine from Scotland to the city of Nabulus's fire department. They also participated in solidarity activities such as olive harvesting in Assyria. As the interrogation escalated, Shear said she was asked if the intention of the trip was to support Palestine. Shear said, He began to become more and more aggressive in his questioning, culminating in him simply asking me if the intention of our visit was to support for the Palestine people. As far as I'm aware, support of the Palestinian people is not a criminal offence, but given the tense situation, I just repeated that we were a trade union delegation and had met with the PGFTU. Shears, who is the first Dundee councillor to visit the twin city of Nambulus for 40 years, said that he believed this was a very deliberate act of harassment and intimidation by the Israeli state to punish the delegation for speaking to the Palestinian people. The group were finally allowed to board the plane from Milan and then saw some of their luggage being removed from the plane. Shear said, We saw our luggage being removed from the plane and, as expected, it did not arrive in Milan with us. We have yet to receive our luggage and Jim's iPad still shows it being in Ben Guron Airport. We are lucky that we are able to return home safely and any luggage lost can be replaced. The Palestinian people experience this treatment every single day at the hands of the Israeli authorities. I cannot express the love, warmth and welcome given to us by the Palestinian people in stark contrast to the aggression and intimidation dished out 
by Israeli authorities. And that article was by Laura Pollock. From the National, Friday the 11th of November 2022, from the news section, Gene Freeman, Tories tried to make a buck from PPE contracts, by Laura Webster. Some Tories were trying to make a buck around PPE contracts during the pandemic, former Scottish Health Secretary Jean Freeman has said as she condemned their sickening behaviour. In an interview with the Herald, Freeman hit out at Downing Street's PPE procurement process during the early part of the pandemic. The former minister, who stood down as an MSP at the 2021 Holyrood election, spoke about her experience as the coronavirus crisis unfolded. In January this year, the UK government's use of VIP lane contract to supply PPE when the virus first began to spread was found to be unlawful. Freeman told the newspaper, I had two thoughts when Downing Street's PPE shenanigans became evident. Thank F, asterisk, 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 we didn't need to rely on them for PPE because we've got our own procurement systems in place and they were good and they worked. Especially when it came to creating new distribution routes and networks. So, thank God. And, by the way, we gave the UK government some of our PPE supplies. The second thought was, dear God, there are some Tories who will always be Tories, eh? That in the midst of a vast human tragedy and all that heartache and suffering and sense of national crisis, that these people would still find a way to make a buck. It was absolutely sickening. Freeman, who was Health Secretary from June 2018 until she left Holyrood and was appointed to an ambassador role at the University of Glasgow earlier this year, also spoke about First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's leadership during the pandemic. She said the SNP leader treated her ministers with respect, adding, I think her view is, I've just made you a government minister because I believe you can do the job. I'm no your mammy. I'm not going to do the job for you. I've got my own job. So could you just get on with it? She continued, One thing that Nicola said at the start still resonates with me. We're all learning as we go, but I'm going to treat the public as adults. I'm going to tell them what I know, I'm going to tell them what I don't know, and I'm going to tell them why we decided to do what we did. That was the standard we set and tried to stick to throughout it all. And that article is by Laura Webster. From the National, Friday the 11th of November 2022, from the news section, Scottish Ambulance Service staff said to take industrial action by Abby Garton Crosby. Staff working in the Scottish Ambulance Service, SES, are to take industrial action in the first step of a pay dispute. It comes after the Royal College of Nursing, RCN, confirmed that nurses are set to strike for the first time in the union's 106-year history as are college and university lecturers and teaching staff in Scottish schools. And now, Unite members in SES, around 1,500 staff, have confirmed they will take industrial action at the end of the month. Workers will take continuous action short of strike from 1.0001am, that's one minute past midnight on November the 25th, including an overtime ban and working to rule. However, they warned that if Health Secretary Humza Yousaf does not re-enter into negotiations, then they are actively considering coordinated strike action with other NHS trade unions. This means union members sticking strictly to contractual terms in respect of working hours, shift start and finish times, and the taking of scheduled breaks. The SAS workers involved in the action will include advanced practitioners, paramedics, planners, administrative, clerical, real-time analysts and business intelligence. 
The measures taken are designed to in no, no way impact on the responses to emergency incidents, the union said. Sharon Graham, Unite General Secretary, said, United is determined to encourage the Scottish Government to return to the negotiating table. The action short of strike we have announced is designed to provide all all-out strike action, but make no mistake about this, if there is no improved offer, then this is exactly what will happen and the Scottish Government will be to blame. We will always stand up for our brave NHS workers and fight for better jobs, terms and conditions. United urge USAF to get back to the negotiating table with an improved offer or face NHS-wide coordinated strike action. Jamie McNamee, United Scotland Ambulance Service convener, said, United's objective in taking this first step of action, shorter strike, is to highlight patient and safety along with the ongoing concerns we have over the poor quality of care due to years of underinvestment and cuts. The offer currently on the table is insufficient and unacceptable. In real terms, it represents a significant pay cut. The present situation is directly contributing to the NHS losing senior staff due to being overworked and poorly paid. Our NHS workers deserve better from the Scottish Government and now they have a final opportunity to make a fair pay offer before this pay dispute dramatically escalates. On November the 4th, Unite NHS members formally re- rejected the latest pay offer made by NHS Scotland by 74% and also voted for industrial action in a number of regional and national health boards. The Retail Price Index, RPI, is currently standing at a 40-year high of 12.6%. The Scottish Government have been contacted for comment. And that was an article by Abby Garton Crosby. From a national... Friday the 11th of November 2022, from the news section, Vandals damage historic Dunfermline City Centre statue beyond repair, by Claire Buchanan. The unicorn at the top of Dunfermline's Market Cross has been smashed after vandals targeted the statue. Police are investigating the incident and it is feared the damage is beyond repair. A police spokesman said, around 9.30pm on Monday, November the 7th, 2022, Police received a report of a statue in High Street, Dunfermline, had been vandalised. Inquiries are ongoing to locate those responsible. If anyone has any information, please contact Police Scotland. Fife Council archaeologist Douglas Spears said they were made aware of the damage on Monday night. It was discovered that the top of the market cross had been dislodged and had fallen to the ground, shattering an impact, he explained. The shattered pieces were recovered and are being assessed to establish whether or not anything is repairable, but, unfortunately, Initial assessments suggest that the damage is beyond repair. Spears said there had been a market cross in Dunfermline High Street since the latter 1120s. It has been subject to replacement and repair many times over the centuries. 1396, 1620, 1695, 1752, he explained. The cross we see today is a replacement erected by public subscription in 1868, with the horn of the unicorn replaced by the council only last year. For almost a thousand years, the heart of Dunfermline's marketplace has been watched over by its market cross. The town's oldest feature of municipal architecture, it has always been a monument of civic pride. It's a spot from which every momentous event in the town's and the country's history has been announced. The site from which innumerable royal proclamations have been announced, from where deals have been done and rebels have been denounced since the early 12th century. Indeed, it's a central place in the heart of the burgesses of Dunfermline, has always ensured that it always been looked after. Historically, the town's various incorporated trades, its bakers, weavers, dyers, cobblers, etc., 
along with its merchant guild, formed in 1433, took it in turns to maintain the cross and to annually repaint its royal heraldry. A tradition continued right up to 1868, when the present cross was raised and resourced by public subscription. And that article was by Claire Buchanan. This is from The National on Monday, the 14th of November, 2022. This is from the news section. Braverman signs New Deal with France on Migrants Crossing Channel. This article is by Adam Robertson. The UK has negotiated a new deal with France to try and stop people crossing the English Channel in small boats. Suella Braverman has come under increasing pressure on immigration following her reappointment as Home Secretary. This included her use of the words invasion to describe migrants crossing the Channel as well as accusations that she ignored legal advice about a processing centre in Kent. The new deal will mean the amount the UK pays France to cover the cost of increased patrols at their end will go up from £55 million to £63 million per year. Enver Solomon, CEO of the Refugee Council, said the deal fails to address the factors which say people put themselves at risk trying to reach Britain in the first place and that the new deal will do little to end the crossings. He called for a focus on more safe routes and working with the EU and other countries to share responsibility for the global challenge. He also urged the UK government to do far more to reduce the backlogs in the current asylum system. The number of people waiting for an initial decision on their asylum applications to the UK almost quadrupled in the last five years from 29,522 in December 2017 to 122,206 in June 2022, according to the Home Office data obtained by the Refugee Council under the Freedom of Information laws. The government must take a more comprehensive approach and create an orderly, fair and humane asylum system that recognises that the vast majority of those taking dangerous journeys are refugees escaping for their lives, Solomon said. It needs to face up to the fact it is a global issue which will not be resolved by enforcement measures alone. The number of officers patrolling the French coast to try to stop people setting off will rise from 200 to 300. So far this year, more than 40,000 people have attempted to make the crossing, the highest number on record. Other measures include an investment in CCTV and dog detection teams to keep tabs and ports and plans to equip officers with drones and night vision capabilities. The agreement was signed by Braverman and French Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin on Monday morning. Rishi Sunak said the move would contribute to his efforts to grip illegal migration and that he was confident numbers would come down over time. The Prime Minister said he had spent more time working on the issue than any other. Expect the autumn statement which will be announced on this Thursday. That article was by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Monday the 14th of November 2022. This is from the politics section. Hancock's not out of the woods yet on scandals during Covid. This is by Kirsty Strickland. Matt Hancock has managed to squeeze a lifetime's worth of humiliation into less than a week by agreeing to appear on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Even if you haven't tuned into the programme, you can probably guess how things are going for the former health secretary. He has experienced hostility from some of his fellow campmates and faced questions over his actions during the coronavirus crisis. Viewers of the show have also made their feelings about him pretty clear. 
Since he entered the jungle last week, Matt Hancock has been selected to complete every one of the gruesome tasks the campmates have been set. On Friday, that involved being pelted with custard, slime and feathers as he answered trivia questions from host Anton Deck. He's eaten a camel's penis and a cow's anus. It seems you can, in fact, put a price on dignity. And yet, none of this is as entertaining as it should be. It's not cathartic to watch him make a fool of himself. It feels too much, too soon after the pandemic. Under questioning from the other cabinets about the lockdown guidance breach that led to him standing down as health secretary, he asked for forgiveness. Some of the groups representing the COVID bereaved have criticised the show for giving Matt Hancock a platform to try to rehabilitate his brand. Many are angry that this PR exercise is happening before the public inquiry into the UK government's handling of the pandemic has reached its conclusions. The whole debate about Matt Hancock entering the jungle and the reaction he's faced since he's been in there shows beyond a doubt that the emotional trauma of the pandemic has not yet abated. The hurt that the public feel over the widespread law-breaking that took place in Downing Street hasn't gone away. The anger that the rulemakers were serial rule-breakers remains. Matt Hancock sought to defend his guidance-breaking clinch with his mistress by telling his campmates, I fell in love. How self-involved do you have to be to allow a sentence like that to leave your lips? It reminded me of the original Dominic Cummings defence, before the eyesight testing was used as mitigation, when we were told that he broke the rules because he loved his family. Remember that? He did what any loving father would do. It's as though these people believe they were the only ones to experience feelings of love, fear and grief during the pandemic. If love was a loophole to get out of restrictions during the COVID crisis, we'd all have had a surefire way to avoid the following rules. I fell in love is so pathetically weak when compared to the sacrifices that the COVID bereaved had to make. Matt Hancock wrote the rules that kept people apart from dying loved ones but he couldn't manage to adhere to them when faced with an opportunity to cheat on his wife. Give me a break. It's clear that so many Conservative MPs still don't get it. Remember last month when Boris Johnson was preparing to throw his hat in the ring to return as Prime Minister? His allies were all over the TV arguing that he was well within his rights to make another bid for the top job and he shouldn't be written off just because he had a piece of cake during lockdown. That disconnect between what a core group of Tory MPs wanted and the disgust that the general public would feel at Johnson's return was apparent then as it is now. It doesn't matter how many times a Tory MP insists that ordinary people want to move on from Partygate and its associated scandals. It doesn't make it true. There is still a sense of injustice at the lack of accountability of the people who held so much power during that awful time. If they had actually followed the letter and spirit of the rules, as the overwhelming majority of ordinary people did, then they might understand why their refusal to do so cut so deeply. So I'm not surprised that Matt Hancock is taking the brunt of the collective anger and grief of those in the jungle and those watching at home. Some commentators are already moaning that he is being bullied by the campmates and viewers alike. But he shouldn't be there in the first place. He should be at work helping his constituents navigate the cost of living crisis. Matt Hancock was probably hoping that his appearance would be a start of a burgeoning TV career. At the very least, he probably expected the public would soften in their opinion of him. I doubt either of those things will happen. The best he can hope for is that he is voted out early 
so he can avoid even further humiliation. That article was by Kirsty Strickland. This is from The National on Monday the 14th of November 2022. This is from the news section. More safe routes needed for migrants, says Scottish Greens. This is by Adam Robertson. More safe routes and support for people fleeing war, conflict and persecution are needed according to the Scottish Greens. This comes as the UK government unveiled its new agreement with France to reduce numbers of people crossing the Channel. The deal will see British immigration offices stationed in France control rooms for the first time with a 40% boost in number of officers patrolling beaches in northern France. Further measures include drones and night vision equipment to help officers detect crossings as well as stepping up surveillance around ports to prevent migrants entering the UK in lorries. The Scottish Greens Human Rights spokesperson Maggie Chapman said People do not risk their lives and those of loved ones on a deadly crossing by choice. They are driven to it out of desperation. Rather than a constant and failed fixation on how to reduce numbers, the focus should be on working with others to address the reasons why so many people are forced to uproot their lives. That means providing solidarity, support and safe routes instead of increasingly militarised borders and seas. A Home Office policy paper detailing the agreement said the activity will begin with immediate effect, with the rise in French officers on beach patrols taking place in the next five months. More than 1,800 migrants arrived in the UK over the weekend, marking the first Channel Crossing in November after an 11-day hiatus. Government figures show 972 people arrived in 22 boats on Saturday, followed by 853 people and 26 boats on Sunday, taking the provisional total for this year to more than 41,000. There were 28,256 crossings in total last year. Chapman continued, Successive UK governments, both Tory and Labour, have inflicted a hostile environment and a series of racist and reactionary policies in order to win the headlines. Whether it is Don raids and detention in prison-like conditions, or a Home Secretary who has said she fantasises about racist deportation flights to Rwanda. The way that they have treated other human beings is appalling. An independent Scotland would pursue a humane and empathetic migration policy rather than one that is based on punishing and scapegoating people who are fleeing horrific circumstances. Braverman, who is to meet neighbouring countries as soon as possible and will travel to Frankfurt later this week to discuss tackling organised crime with her G7 counterpart said, We must do everything we can to stop people making these dangerous journeys and crack down on the criminal gangs. This is a global challenge requiring global solutions and it is in the interests of both the UK and French governments to work together to solve the complex problem. There are no quick fixes, but this new arrangement will mean we can significantly increase the number of French gendarmes controlling the beaches in northern France and ensure UK and French officers are working hand-in-hand to stop the people smugglers. That article was by Adam Robertson. From The National, Monday the 14th of November 2022, from the Culture section, Douglas Stewart's Shuggy Bean to become TV series on BBC, by Adam Robertson. Scott's author, Douglas Stewart, is adapting his best-selling Booker Prize-winning novel, Shuggy Bean, into a TV series, the BBC's announced. Shuggy Bean, Stewart's debut novel, is set in 1980s Glasgow and is about a young boy growing up amid addiction and poverty. 
The story, which won the Booker Prize in 2020, was inspired by Stuart's own childhood in Thatcher Years Glasgow and is described as a powerful portrayal of a working class family. The book has gone on to win numerous awards over the years and was one of the most critically acclaimed novels of 2020 and became an international bestseller sold in 39 countries. It has been adapted for BBC One and iPlayer, produced and distributed international by A24. Douglas Stewart said, I am deeply grateful to the BBC and A24 for their belief in Shuggy Bane. I am thrilled to bring the Bane family to the screen and the opportunity to expand my novel and to bring new threads to the story, exploring hardships and struggles as well as the compassion, humour and resilience that is so central to the Scottish spirit. Gaynor Holmes, BBC Drama Commissioning Editor, said, Shuggy Bane is an extraordinary novel with all the makings of an extraordinary television show. It's a real honour to be working with the immensely talented Douglas Stewart to bring his vision to the BBC. Filming for the television series is set to take place in Scotland with more details to be announced in due course. And that was an article by Adam Robertson. From The National Monday the 14th of November 2022 From the culture section Edinburgh Hogmanay torchlight procession axed due to lack of cash by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. The torchlight procession which kicks off Edinburgh's world-famous Hogmanay celebrations has been cancelled, it has been confirmed. The spectacle would normally draw crowds of thousands, but funding difficulties has meant the River of Fire, which ordinarily runs through the capital streets, has been paused this year. Edinburgh City Council said they hoped the event would return this year, adding that the local authorities shared that disappointment the procession would not be out to see, on to see out 2022. However, the traditional street party, cancelled for the last two years because of the pandemic, will go ahead as normal and will feature pop legends Pet Shop Boys, while Murder on the Dance Floor singer Sophie Alex Bester will appear at a disco in Princess Street Gardens, the local authority said. Council leader Cammy Day said, Whilst I share the disappointment with many that we won't see the return of the torchlight procession this year, Edinburgh's Hogmanay will still be the best place to welcome 2023. So far, Unique and Assembly have announced an exciting Night of Four disco party with Sophie Ellis-Bexter, the return of the best street party in the world with Pet Shop Boys headlining the party in the gardens, and they've topped it off with an inaugural New Year's Day final fling showcase. Next week, we will see the full pro- next, week, next week, we'll see the full programme packed with events and activities for all the family announced. This is a new chapter for Edinburgh's Hogmanay celebration as we continue to build back following the pandemic. Whilst I'm sure many will be disappointed that the torchlight procession hasn't returned straight away, we look forward to seeing it back next year, better than ever. Unique Events and Assembly, the firms which put on the torchlight parade, have said they did not have enough money to put on the show this year. In a statement, the directors of the firm said, We have been trying hard to find a way to bring the torchlight procession into Edinburgh's Hogmanay celebrations this year, However, we are very disappointed to confirm that due to the current economic climate and the drop in available funding, we are unable to go ahead with this event in 2022. Our full programme of events, including activities for families and children, over the three days of Edinburgh's Hogmanay will be announced later this week. We very much hope to bring back the torchlight procession to the Edinburgh's Hogmanay programme in 2023. And that article was by Hamish Morrison. From the National Monday the 14th of November 2022, from the Culture section, Louis Capaldi's Someone You Loved is UK's most streamed song, article by Adam Robertson. 
Lewis Capaldi's hit song, Someone You Loved, has become the UK's most streamed song of all time, the official charts company has announced. It overtook Ed Sheeran's Shape of You to reach the top spot as a, as a list of the most streamed songs in the UK was compiled to celebrate 70 years of the official singles chart on Monday. Having amassed 562 million audio and visual streams combined, Capaldi received a special edition Matte Black Number no. 1 award and an inflatable crown to mark the occasion. He said, I'm the streaming king in the UK in this particular song. I feel huge, I feel massive, I feel my loins expanding as I become more and more aware of the reality of my coronation as the king of music. Thank you. A very large accolade that I will now shoulder for the rest of my life, or until Ed Sheeran releases his next album. Sheeran, 31, co-wrote the track Pointless to Pointless on the Scottish singer's upcoming album Broken by Desire to be Heavenly Sent, which is set for release on May the 19th, 2023. Speaking about passing Sheeran to become the all-time streamer record holder, Capaldi quipped, Ed's a man who's like a brother to me, he's been a mentor. He's put her arm around me and said, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. He gave us the honour of supporting him in the closing shows of the Divide Tour. He's been nothing but kind and gracious and beautiful, a good friend in an ever-changing industry. So to Ed I say, eat my ace, Asterix Asterix T. That's what happens, nice guys finish last. You snooze, you lose, kiddo. Keep up. Shape of You and Perfect by Sheeran and Capaldi, Someone You Love, are the only tracks to have topped the 500 million lifetime streams, with only 7 tracks topping the 400 lifetime streams in total, the official charts company said. Capaldi's critically acclaimed 2019 debut album, Divinely Uninspired to a Hellish Extent, emerged as the biggest selling UK album of both 2019 and 2020. And that article was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Monday the 14th of November 2022, from the comments section, Real Threat to Free Speech Comes from the Rich by Steph Payton, columnist Free speech as a contemporary issue is one that has increasingly found itself in the spotlight over the past few years, having allegedly been under threat from the global Marxist transgender PC police or something like that. Truthfully though, modern concerns over freedom of speech and free expression are as calculated and cynical as any other historically left-wing idea picked up in brandies by reactionaries and the far right. Though that doesn't mean that protected speech as we know it is not under threat. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The road to free speech is littered with the detritus of movements that fought fascists and tyrants throughout the centuries. Burning cop cars and topple statues been the landmarks of a path well tread and long challenged. The free speech rows that make the headlines now as much in common with that fight as plastic wrapped square cheese has with the real thing. While free speech concerns in the West have often been related to government and religious persecution of minority groups and trade unionists, now they seem wholly reserved for a class of people upset that they can't drop a racial slur on Facebook or consciously misgender someone in the workplace. And always, those free speech concerns never extend to the rights of people they intend to victimise. When protesters against hate speech gather, they are inevitably painted as a violent mob coming forth to wish free-spirited debate. Rather than a group exercising their own freedom to speak and to criticise, expressed or otherwise, the vast majority do support limitations and restrictions on unfettered free speech, including the loudest advocates of so-called free speech absolutism. These self-appointed martyrs who wax lyrical on the limitless expression are always the quickest to hit the litigation button when they find their precious ears offended. In contemporary free speech rules, the power dynamic is topsy-turvy to its traditions. 
While historically the right to freedom of expression concerned itself with protecting the powerless from the powerful, now the roles are reversed. How else could freedom, averse fascist and extreme right ideologues have so easily wrapped themselves in the language of liberty? Not a day passes when I don't read or hear the opinion of celebrities, commentators and politicians living through the cancellation in perpetuity, while the targets of their abuse, lacking the same wealth and media connections, stay excluded from a conversation about them that so rarely includes them. Ask yourself honestly, on Black Lives Matter and refugees fleeing war and the rights of transgender people in the UK, how much of your opinion has been formed from listening directly to the communities involved as opposed to privileged and disconnected commentators with major platforms? You could argue that both have the freedom to say their respective pieces, but trying to hear one of the other is like listening for a whisper beneath a jet plane. These pantomime cancellations are a display of power itself, a function of the privilege that raps being reasonably criticised into being unfairly cancelled. The early promise of social media was to reduce that imbalance and that it has actually succeeded and failed in equal measure. For all the misinformation and manipulation that proliferates on online spaces, social platforms also give a means to marginalised and spoken over communities to find one another, organise and speak freely of their experiences in a scale that has never been before been possible in the entire history of the human race. And if we want to talk about where the real threat to the freedom of speech lies, the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk is a good place to start. Should things continue down their current path, the future tale of Twitter, Inc. will be one of the richest men on the planet buying a platform used for effective left-wing and anti-autocratic organising during the early 21st century and driving it deep, deep, deep into the ground. The debate around free speech is often conducted as if the world had remained unchanged since the times of John Stuart Mill or James Madison, the author of the US Bill of Rights. However, the means with which we communicate now outpace anything either could have begun to conceive of, in much the same way that the right to bear arms in the US Constitution was written with rifles in mind, not automatic weapons. Both now have the capacity to be infinitely more damaging. US conspiracy theorist and Infowars host Alec Jones and free speech systems were ordered last week to pay another $473 million to the families of the victims of the Sandy Hook school shooting. Jones had repeatedly promoted to millions of listeners a conspiracy that claimed the massacre of children at a US school was a hoax staged by crisis actors to, ena- to enact more gun controls in America. And, while Jones made millions pushing his lies, the bereaved families of Sandy Hook had to deal with years of harassment and threats as a result. For reasons like this, we do expect restrictions on free speech. Violent incitement against minority groups on global platforms is not just expressing an opinion. Hate speech should not pass without consequence. Most free speech absolutists are so entrenched in their wealth and power that the concept of not being heard is entirely out with their ken. I imagine they haven't even considered that a word word to them could mean a bullet to another. And... While minority groups are demonised as anti-free speech fanatics for pushing back against the powerful, the rich dismantle the means to communicate freely at scale and the Conservative government cuts further and further away at the right to protest without imprisonment. And that column was by Steph Payton. From the National Tuesday the 15th of November 2022 From the news section Glasgow prosecutors look to recover £162,000 from XMP. Natalie McGarry Prosecutors are looking to recover £162,000 from shamed former MP Natalie McGarry. McGarry, 41, 
was jailed for two years at Glasgow Sheriff Court in June this year. She was found guilty of taking £19,974 while Treasurer of Women for Independence. McGarry also embezzled a further £4,661 while Treasurer, Se- Treasurer, Secretary and Convener of the Glasgow Regional Association of the SNP. McGarry, who denied the accusations, had been the MP for Glasgow East between 2015 and 2017. A process of crime hearing where prosecutors are looking to recover monies embezzled was postponed today as the sheriff was unavailable. McGarry was also not in attendance. Her lawyer, Pat Campbell, said she is not present. She is presently in custody serving a sentence for the proceedings which are underlie this matter. There is a joint motion to adjourn and to continue this until January. This is to allow, to allow the question of appeals. She was allowed to appeal her sentence last Friday and there was a refusal to appeal the conviction at the first sift. A fresh prosecution statement was served last night. The statement says that the Crown are seeking to get £162,000 from McGarry. The matter was continued until January by Sheriff Tom Ward and that report was unattributed. From a national, Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the news section, Ian Duncan Smith, Manchester Assault, accused, cleared by judge, by Dave Higgins. A man accused of assaulting former Tory leader Ian Duncan Smith with a traffic cone has been cleared by a district judge who ruled he had no case to answer. Duncan Smith had told Manchester Magistrate Court how he feared for his wife and her friend when he had the cone slammed onto his head as they were followed by protesters hurling abuse at him during the 2021 Conservative Party conference in the city. On Tuesday, District Judge Paul Goldspring said the evidence which identified Elliot Bovo, 32, as the person caught on CCTV putting the orange and white cone on the 68-year-old MP's head was weak and tenuous. Goldspring dismissed the common assault charge against Bovo of no fixed address, saying there was no case to answer. The trial of co-defendants Radical Haslam, 29 of Douglas Street, Salford, and Ruth Wood, 51 of Oak Tree Avenue, Cambridge, continued on Tuesday with Bovo watching from the public gallery. Haslam and Wood both deny using threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour with intent to cause harassment, alarm or distress. And that article was by Dave Higgins. From The National, Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the news section, Scottish Parliament apology to women ejected for suffragette scarf by Hamish Morrison. A woman ejected from a committee meeting on transgender law reform for wearing a suffragette scarf has received an apology on behalf of the Scottish Parliament from the presiding officer. Alison Johnson said the decision by security to ask the woman to remove the scarf and the subsequent decision to prevent her from re-entering the meeting were errors. The woman had been attending a meeting of the Equalities Committee which was discussing controversial changes to the law around transgender people changing their sex or official documents. She apologised on behalf of the Parliament and emphasised that colours associated with the campaign for women's right to vote were not banned from the building. Visitors are banned from wearing clothes and accessories with political banners or flags on them, but Johnson said that there's nothing good the purple, green and white colours of the suffragettes. The purple, white and green colours were used by women's rights campaigners in the early 20th century and are now often used by gender-critical feminists opposed to gender recognition reform. Before the meeting of Holyrood's main debating chamber on Tuesday began, 
Johnson told the MSPs, I wish to address an issue which occurred at the Equality, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee this morning, which members may be aware of and which members have the raised with me. At that meeting, a visitor to the public gallery was asked to remove a purple, green and white scarf. Having declined to do so, the visitor was informed that she would not be able to return to the gallery. This request is made by officials in connection with the Parliament's Code of Conduct for Visitors, which sets out the, the display of banners, flags or political slogans, including on clothes and accessories, is forbidden. Let me make one thing crystal clear. Suffrage colours are not and never have been banned at the Scottish Parliament. We actively support and promote universal suffrage in a number of ways at Holyrood, and we will continue to do so. I would like to advise the Chamber that the action taken this morning was not prompted by any members of the committee. The action was t- taken was an error, and I would like to apologise on behalf of the Parliament. The wearing of a scarf in those colours does not itself breach the visitor's code of conduct. The Parliament wishes people to engage with the democratic process, including observing elected representatives' debate and make, and make the law of the country. And that article was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the politics section, Scottish Tories in astonishing response after fake news accusations. This item is an exclusive by Hamish Morrison. The Scottish Conservatives have doubled down after being accused of spreading fake news by falsely claiming police officers in Scotland are on strike. The party shared a graphic on social media which wrongly includes police officers when a list of professions are on strike and have refused to correct the inaccuracy. Callum Steele, the head of the Scottish Police Federation, confirmed police are not legally allowed to strike. But when asked whether the social media post would be taken down because it was spreading incorrect information, a party spokesperson said, This post correctly highlighted the wave of disruption that has been caused by the SNP's inaction when it comes to pay disputes across Scotland's public sector. It has led to accusations the party is willingly spreading disinformation to attack the Scottish Government. The Scottish Government has called the accusations false and misleading. A spokesperson said, Under long-standing legal arrangements, Police officers are unable to take strike action and suggestions to the contrary are false and misleading. Our police officers play a vital and valued role and we want to recognise that by ensuring they are the best paid in the UK. We are pleased the Police Negotiating Board reached an agreement on police officer pay for this year which gives a 5% pay increase to all officers. Alan Dorans, the SNP's police spokesperson said, The inclusion of police officers on the list is either ignorant or dishonest as they must know Scottish police officers accepted a deal in August. He added, I am frankly disgusted by this desperate attempt from the Scottish Conservatives to conceal the UK government's direct responsibility for a range of industrial action affecting the whole of the UK. At a time of soaring revenue for the UK Treasury from Scottish oil and gas fields and from renewable electricity production, they have refused to adequate, adequate funding to the Scottish government to meet fair pay settlements. Chris McElhinney, Alba's General Secretary said, The desperate Tories will go to any lengths to deflect from the chaos their party has inflicted on Scotland from Westminster. There are many issues that the Scottish Government need to address, and Alba have argued for a more progressive tax system to create a bigger pot of money to reward the workers that keep us safe and keep Scotland moving. But this debate is not served by fake news spread by the Tories. The police cannot lawfully take part in strike action and they haven't done so. The Tories can't be trusted with getting basic facts rights, so why would they, why on earth would they be trusted for delivering for working people? 
The Scottish Tories have claimed we're referring to police refusing to take work over and above what they are contracted to do, which ended in August this year when officers took a 5% backdated pay raise. A spokesperson for the party said, We know the police cannot legally go on strike, but the derisory play-offer made by the SNP government in the summer prompted the Scottish Police Federation to take what Callum Steele himself described as the most overt demonstration of action by our members in more than 100 years. Officers withdrew their goodwill, which meant they stopped doing free overtime they usually dedicate themselves to. The tweet with the graphic remained active in the party's account at the time of going to press. It comes after Scottish Conservatives leader Douglas Ross accused SNP MPs of deliberately misleading the public over Scotland's renewable energy potential, for which he was upbraided by the Speaker in the Commons on Tuesday. And that piece was an exclusive by Hamish Morrison. From the National... Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the news section. 12 swans found dead at Park in Glasgow as council issues warning. Report by Lauren Brownlee. 12 swans have been found dead at a park in Glasgow. The local authority revealed that the birds were discovered in Hogginfield Park in the city's east end. A dog walker took to social media to warn others to stay away after witnessing the distressing scene this morning. It is believed the cause of death is due to avian flu, otherwise known as bird flu. Glasgow City Council said the birds will be removed and warned members of the public to avoid contact with any dead birds. A post on Twitter read, We have received reports of six dead swans at Hogginfield Park and, in line with advice from DEFRA, we are assuming the birds have died from avian flu. Please avoid any contact with a dead bird or any bird that appears to be visibly sick and report this by phoning 0141 287-1059 Around 14 minutes later, an update read We have advised there are now at least 12 confirmed deaths and the number is expected to rise. A spokesperson for the council said Due to the high footfall in the park, we have engaged an approved contractor to ensure the birds are removed and disposed of appropriately. We are monitoring our park regularly, but members of the public are advised to avoid any contact with a dead bird or any bird that appears to be visibly sick. If anyone encounters a dead or sick bird, they should report this to an environmental health team through our website or by calling 0141-287-1059. The country has been facing its largest ever outbreak of avian flu, and bird keepers, including those with hens, have been told to protect their flocks. An avian influenza prevention zone, AIPZ, has been declared a chlorospatin to lessen the risk of the disease spreading in poultry and other captive birds. Birdkeepers must follow strict biosecurity and hygiene measures to protect their flocks from the disease. And that article is by Lauren Brownlee. From the National, Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the sports section. Aaron Ramsey relishing Wales World Cup adventure. Aaron Ramsey admits he is having to pinch himself ahead of Wales' first World Cup campaign since 1958. While it is five months since Wales secured qualification following an emotion-charged victory over Ukraine, departure day for Qatar topped up excitement levels and underlined that the dream is now reality. More than a third of Ramsey's 75 Wales caps have been won in World Cup qualifying games during a 14-year international career. 
Now, though, he will finally perform on football's biggest stage, emulating star performers of 64 years ago, such as John Charles, Ivor Allchurch and Cliff Jones. It's absolutely huge, and for us to achieve it is amazing, midfielder Ramsey said. You can feel the buzz around the place, and hopefully we can go out there and give a good account of ourselves. All those great teams we've had in the past, all these great players, they've come so close, but to actually do it, this has been many years in the making. We have come such a long way. Now, for it to be a reality, now it is starting to really strike home that we are less than a week away. You have to pinch yourself. It's brilliant for us as a country. I am certainly looking forward to it. It might be similar to the Euros 2016 when we first walked out. It is going to be really special. The spirit and togetherness we have is part of the reason for our success. We are a very tightly knit team and I think it is evident in the way that we play. Wales face the United States in their World Cup opener on Monday and Ramsey arrives at the tournament fully fit and raring to go. For me, it has just been focusing on taking every game as it comes and making sure I am doing the right things and ticking off things as the weeks go by, added Ramsey, who joined French club Nice from Juventus in August. I'm feeling good. The Nice staff have been brilliant and I've got a couple of people I work with on the side as well. I have played quite a few minutes and there were a lot of positives in going there. It is a great project to be part of, playing at the highest level and playing in Europe. It feels like that was the best place for me to be at this time. Wales's last two experiences of major championships saw them reach the knockout phase each time, including a semi-final appearance in Euro 2016. The top two from a World Cup group that also includes England and Iran will qualify for the round of 16 in Qatar. We are just going to concentrate on the first game, but we want to get out of our group, Ramsey said. In knockout football, anything can happen, as we all know. The first game is massively important. From the National, Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the sports section. How Celtic's Champion League goal can drag up Scottish football, by Matthew Lindsay. Ange Postecoglou has stressed that he remains committed to turning Celtic into a successful Champions League side, despite their difficult return to Europe's Premier Club competition, and predicted it will raise the standard of the entire Scottish game if he does so. The Glasgow outfit, which had last locked horns with the Continental Elite way back in 2017, failed to win any of their Group F encounters with RB Leipzig, Real Madrid and Shakhtar Donetsk this season and finished bottom of their section. Yet Postecoglou, whose side won widespread plaudits for the style of football they produced against their German, Spanish and Ukrainian rivals, is undeterred by the disappointments which the Scottish champions endured. The Greek-Australian coach appreciates that Celtic must strive to be competitive at the highest level in Europe, as well as dominant domestically, and is keen to retain the cinch premiership this term and qualify for the Champions League group stages again next year. He believes that if his players reach a level where they are challenging for a place in the knockout rounds in future, it will have a positive impact on the likes of Aberdeen, Dundee United, Hearts, Hibernian, Kilmarnock, Livingston and Ross County. If your goal is just to be the best house in your street, but you live in a neighbourhood of thousands, then you have to look beyond that, he said. 
That's not to disrespect the local competition. If anything, you hope that it raises the level. If we want to raise the level of Scottish football, then our best clubs need to get bigger and stronger, and hopefully that drags others up, instead of just keeping the big clubs down and hoping that that makes it better. Postecoglou began his coaching career in Australia and enjoyed great success with South Melbourne and Brisbane Raw before being appointed Socceroos manager and leading his country through to the World Cup finals in 2014 and 2018. However, he confessed that he felt restricted by the conditions which he worked under in his adopted homeland when he was starting out. A-League clubs are only allowed five foreign players in their squads and there is a salary cap which only two marquee signings are exempt from. The 57-year-old relishes not being limited by such constraints at Celtic, who are nine points clear of Rangers at the top of the Premiership table going into the Qatar 2022 break, and believes that being able to improve further can benefit their domestic opponents. I come from Australia where we love equalising sports, he said. People here talk a lot about the disparity of budgets and how unfair it is and all that. In Australia, they go the opposite way. Everyone has the same salary cap, the same resources, and the same way of recruiting everyone through a draft. Every team and supporter thinks they can win it. You know what? I got frustrated with that, because if you want to get better, you can't. There are rules stopping you. What they do is bring the best down to an equilibrium. Postacoglu added, The way I am as a person is, let's make the best better and try to drag everyone else up. That way that is going to happen in Scotland is for a club like ours to have their sights set on being a top Champions League club. If that means we dominate local competition, then it challenges everyone else to be better. That has to be our goal. My responsibility is to this club. We have 60,000 fans at our stadium every other week and millions around the world. Why shouldn't they have success at Champions League level? That has to be my goal. If not, I'm doing this job a disservice. Postecoglou put the bitter disappointment of failing to win a single game at the World Cup Finals in Brazil in 2014 firmly behind him the following year when he led Australia to victory in the Asian Cup for the first time ever. He insisted that confidence in his abilities had not been dented by the defeats that Celtic suffered in the Champions League to Leipzig and Real and admitted those reverses reminded him of his experience in the international game. I have never doubted myself, he said. I didn't enjoy the experience. I was disappointed. How can you enjoy it? People say, it's Real Madrid, it's the Bernabeu. But we lost 5-1. Within me, there was still a determination. We took some blows, but we had to have determination to go out and be better next time. I was at the World Cup in 2014, and we were 2-0 down to Chile after 10 minutes in the opening game. The whole world is watching, and I'm thinking... This could be a long World Cup. You are totally exposed. I learned through that time that I didn't lack self-belief. It wasn't arrogance, but I knew we could dig in. We lost 3-1, but it was a cracking game. Then we took on Holland, who had beaten Spain 5-0, and we lost 3-2. They are losses, but at no stage did I think I wish I was somewhere else. This could end up embarrassing. At 2-0 against Real, I was thinking we had way to get back into the game. We get the penalty and miss. That was frustrating and we were disappointed, but I never had doubts. 
Can Ange Postecoglou bounce back from the losses that Celtic recorded in the Champions League in exactly the same way that he did after Australia were knocked out of the World Cup? That is certainly his goal. He is adamant it will have far-reaching repercussions for Scottish football as a whole if he succeeds. That article was by Matthew Lindsay. From The National of Tuesday, the 15th of November 2022, from the comment section, How Scotland helped inspire Nepal's shift to peace and democracy, by Shrishti Rana. Three years ago, a delegate of senior leaders and parliamentarians from Nepal visited Scotland, hosted by then-MP Stephen Gethins. The Nepalese team visited the Scottish Parliament and met the MSPs from different political parties. After the meetings, the visiting delegates were impressed by Scotland's progressive policies, particularly by its people-centric policies on health and education. The Scots whom we met were evidently open-minded and welcoming towards foreigners. They seemed straightforward and also kind and warm. They showed respect towards the Nepalese leaders, asking questions about Nepal and offering tea, which was not the case with a few other meetings outside Scotland. What struck the visitors most was the peaceful orientation of the Scottish political struggle. As the coordinator of the team from Nepal, I remember one member saying, Scotland's experiences on welfare, democracy and peaceful movements are so relevant to Nepal. We have so far concentrated only on Westminster to draw our inspirations. But Scotland is closer to our vision of welfare, democracy and peaceful political struggle. Since then, there have been a few other visits of MPs from Nepal to Scotland on both formal and informal missions. In effect, there is a sense among some politicians in Nepal that Scotland's political experiences, particularly its leadership on climate change and gender equality, can offer useful inspiration to Nepal's own democratisation process and climate strategies. On Sunday the 20th of November, Nepal will hold national and provincial elections in which 18 million citizens are eligible to vote. This is a good time to share the developments of Nepal's recent democratisation and peace process with the people of Scotland. Nepal has achieved many progressive changes recently, It has one of the youngest constitutions in the world, promulgated in 2015. Nepal has dealt with its vast diversity of around 125 caste and ethnic groups, speaking more than 100 languages. Of course, a few challenges still remain. Perhaps the Himalayan nation's recent political experiences could be also relevant to Scotland. Nepal's upcoming polls are the fourth elections since the peace process began in 2005. That we have reached this point is considered a good indicator of stable peace. The armed conflict in Nepal started in 1996 with the initiation of a protracted insurgency by an ultra-leftist group called the Maoists, 
which agreed to peace talks and signed a peace agreement after 10 years of armed violence. Since then, Nepal has been in a rocky political transition with constant ups and downs. Its peace process was derailed a few times. The first constituent assembly elected in 2008 to draft the new constitution was dissolved before it could finalise the work. Elections to the constitution-making assembly had to be conducted for the second time. But this assembly also failed to promulgate the new constitution within the deadline. Finally, the new constitution was declared in 2015, but its ratification process was boycotted by the political parties representing Madesi ethnic communities in southern Nepal. There is a brighter side. The new constitution has laid a foundation for socially inclusive democracy. The representation of previously excluded groups has been ensured. The representation of women has been guaranteed, with 40% of seats at the local level and 33% at the national stroke provincial level. We have a female president for the first time. A number of the parliamentary committees are headed by women. For a country which had less than 5% female representation in Parliament before the peace process began, it is remarkable progress. The coming elections also indicate that Nepal is moving towards a secure multi-party democracy. The new constitution facilitated the institutionalisation of Nepal's democracy through mandatory elections at all three levels, and they took place in 2017. Despite a few challenges during the last Parliament's term, the coming elections are being held after the mandated five years. For a country which struggled to have regular elections in the past, the upcoming polls are a significant step forward towards a stable democracy. Health, education and jobs have captured the top priority of most political parties as people prepare to vote. Interestingly, the parties have also featured the environmental agenda in these elections, unlike in the past. They have included climate change goals in their manifestos, such as a zero-carbon emission target by 2045, increasing forestation and setting up a climate change research centre, among others. The aspirations of Nepalese people on greater inclusive democracy, climate-friendly policies and peaceful political struggles are similar to those of the Scottish people. This framework can bring the people of two nations together. Shrishti Rana is from Nepal and is currently studying for a PhD at the University of St Andrews. From the National, Tuesday the 15th of November 2022, from the Sports section. Spain shortlists three venues for Scotland Euro 2024's showdown. Spain have drawn up a shortlist of three venues where they will host Scotland in the Euro 2024 qualifiers next year, and the Tartan army could be heading to Gran Canaria. 
Steve Clark's side will face top seed Spain in their quest to make their second European Championships in a row and will also play against Norway, Georgia and Cyprus. Scotland's biggest test will come when they travel to Spain in the third last game of the group in October, before travelling to face Georgia and ending with a home game against the Norwegians. Spain doesn't have a home stadium for their national team and take their games all around the country. And it's been reported the Royal Spanish Football Federation have drawn up a shortlist of three venues where they will host the Scots. The favourite is the 32,392 capacity Estado Gran Canaria in Las Palmas. They hosted Northern Ireland there for the Euro 28 qualifiers, but haven't played there for four years. The other options are the Estadio Manuel Martinez Valero in Elche, which holds 31,388, and last hosted a Nations League qualifier against Croatia in 2018. And nearby Estadio José Rico Pérez in Alicante, which holds 29,500, is also being considered, having been last used by the Spanish national team in a World Cup qualifier in 2017 against Albania. Scotland kick off their Euro 2024 campaign with a home doubleheader against Cyprus and Spain in March. This article was by Mark Walker. The National News on Wednesday the 16th of November. Yusuf warns A&E weights will fluctuate over winter. An article written by Adam Robertson. There'll be fluctuations in A&E waiting times throughout this most challenging winter, the Health Secretary Hamza Youssef has warned. The latest figures showed an improvement in performance after the final week of October saw A&E departments produce their worst ever performance against targets. Despite calls for Mr Youssef to be sacked, Nicola Sturgeon said that the Health Secretary had her absolute confidence. Public Health Scotland data for the week ending November the 6th showed 65.1% of patients were dealt with within the target time, although that's still below the Scottish Government target of 95%. Emergency departments dealt with 25,123 patients in the week ending November the 6th, with the figures showing that 8,760 were there for four hours or more, down from 9,615 the previous week. Mr Youssef said the latest figures showed an improvement in overall performance, but that there would still be fluctuations in performance over the course of the winter. With mounting pressures on the NHS, the Health Secretary has repeatedly warned the service will face its most challenging winter ever. Conservative Health spokesperson Dr Sandesh Gulhain hit out at the figures, describing them as scarcely believable. When Douglas Ross called for Mr Youssef to be sacked at First Minister's questions last week, Deputy First Minister John Swinney described it as a laughable proposition. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said yesterday that it's the UK government to blame for difficulties in the NHS. Mr Youssef said, This week we have seen an improvement in overall performance and a decrease in the number of patients waiting longer than 12 hours for treatment. There's also been a drop in the number of patients who spent more than 12 hours in A&E, down from 3,391 last week to 3,021 this week, a 10.9% reduction. This is welcome, but I'm clear we'll continue to see fluctuations in performance over the course of the winter. 
He continued, The combined impact of pandemic backlogs, Brexit-driven staff shortages and inflation costs will make this winter the most challenging the NHS has ever faced. Delayed discharge continues to be the single biggest factor driving up any waits, and health boards are striving to ensure people leave hospital without delay, freeing up vital beds for those who need them most. A key focus of our winter plan is on social care and actions to encourage authorities to help ease delays. We're engaged in intensive discussions with local authorities and integration authorities to ensure every single ounce of spare capacity in the community is being utilised. Our £600 million winter plan will see us recruit 1,000 new NHS staff and our £50 million urgent and unscheduled care collaborative looks to drive down A&E waits through scheduled urgent appointments, hospital at home and directing people to most appropriate care. Dr Gulhane said Nicola Sturgeon may have absolute confidence in Hamza Youssef, but long-suffering patients and heroic staff certainly do not, and changing the health secretary would allow for fresh planning for winter. Hamza Youssef has completely lost the trust of patients and staff, and his flimsy NHS recovery plan has proven to be a monumental failure. It's time Nicola Sturgeon accepted this and sacked him. Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa said the latest figures are concerning as they come before the NHS is anywhere near the peak winter pressures. He said, if you look at the last four weeks' statistics, it's the worst we've ever performed in our National Health Service, and that's even before we get to those winter pressures, so the measures being taken by the government are simply not good enough. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National On Wednesday the 16th of November. Opinion. The truth about Ruth exposed. A column written by the wee ginger Doug. When Ruth Davidson was given her seat in the Lords for services to making out that the Conservatives aren't really alien lizard people who steal food from poor children, she promised that she was taking up her seat in order to reform the House of Lords. Upon taking up her ermine robes in 2021, Ruth... Don't call me Baroness, Davidson said that she was doing so in large measure to reform the House of Lords into a democratic chamber. However, more than a year later, it transpires that she has had as much success in reforming the House of Lords as she had in reforming the Scottish Conservatives. So not a whole lot then. The Lords continues to be a bloated house of patronage, stuffed to the gills with political has-beens, lackeys, toadies and failures. Ms Davidson will shortly be joined in her unelected and unaccountable privilege by such um, luminaries as Alistair Jack and Nadine Doris. They've both been awarded peerages for their sterling work in enabling the most dishonest, corrupt and detestable waste of space who has occupied number 10 in the modern era, further bloating an already bloated chamber which is only exceeded in the number of its members by the National People's Congress of China which, unlike the House of Lords, at least has the grace to pretend to be democratic. There's no legislative chamber anywhere in the world, and certainly not in any democratic state, which is so nakedly undemocratic and based on such open patronage. The Lords is an offence to democratic decency. It continues to exist because the leaders of the two main parties in the UK's unfair and anti-democratic two-party first-past-the-post system find it's a useful means of rewarding their cronies and donors 
and for providing a convenient retirement home on the public purse, from which senior party members like Ms Davidson can continue to enjoy a political platform and keep influencing public policy and legislation without having to trouble themselves with trivial issues such as democracy. The Tories continue to stuff the Lords with new members. Mr Johnson did so in his resignation honours list, despite being forced out of office by a Conservative party which could no longer tolerate his lack of honour, and it's not as if the party set the bar especially high in that regard. Liz Truss, too, will have her resignation honours list, despite scarcely being in office long enough to complain about the wallpaper and having as her sole achievement a disaster of a mini-budget, which has cost the public purse an estimated £30 billion, meaning that Miss Truss cost the public £682 million every day that she was in office. Remember that figure the next time that Douglas Ross complains about the cost to the public of the ferries. Despite her claims to have accepted her peerage in order to reform the House of Lords, Ms Davidson has not once seen fit to mention democratic reform of the upper chamber during any of the six times she's spoken since arriving there. And now we've learned that despite her fitful attendance record and limited speaking in the chamber, Ms Davidson has claimed more than £15,000 in allowances and expenses. However, the real issue here is not that Ms Davidson has cost the public £15,000 for very little return. That sum is a drop in the ocean compared to the vast sums that the Conservatives have cost us these past two months alone. It's the offence to democracy that the Lords represents, an outdated and insulting relic that has no place in a modern society, a ridiculous anachronism that both Labour and the Tories defend out of self-interest. A column written by the wee ginger Doug. The National News on Wednesday the 16th of November. Survivor makes call for more life-saving bone marrow donors. An article written by Gregor Young. A former soldier who was just days away from death after being diagnosed with leukaemia was saved by a bone marrow transplant. Jamie Buchanan, who was 45, began having back pain and severe night sweats before being admitted to Ninewells Hospital in Dundee after having acute chest pain. Medics diagnosed Mr Buchanan with leukaemia and told him he was days away from death. His wife was six months pregnant with twins at the time and the armed response police officer was terrified he wouldn't see his children grow up. The cause of the cancer was a faulty gene known as the Philadelphia positive, meaning despite chemotherapy, the cancer would likely come back. Mr Buchanan said, I was in and out of consciousness and was whisked away to the high dependency unit before being moved on to the haematology ward. My first thought was, I've had a good run, but it's over. I was there with my wife, who's six months pregnant, and we're thinking I won't get to see my children. Doctors told Mr Buchanan his only hope was a life-saving bone marrow transplant, and they found a match in Germany through the Anthony Nolan Bone Marrow Register. He was quickly put through a strong bout of chemotherapy to prepare for the transplant, which took place at the Beetson West of Scotland Cancer Centre in 2016. Mr McCannon, who served for more than 10 years in Northern Ireland and the Second Gulf War, has been cancer-free for six years. He's back to full fitness, incorporating a strict regime of running, weights and training, as well as looking after identical twin daughters Erin and Eva. 
Mr Buchanan has urged others to sign up as bone marrow donors and said it's as simple as giving blood. He said, I consider every single member of staff as lifesavers and angels. I simply would not be here without them. I'd encourage anyone to sign up as a bone marrow donor as well. It's such a simple process, not dissimilar to giving blood, and you could help save someone's life. Susan Groom, Director for Regional Services, including bone marrow transplants, said, We're proud of the service our team provides at the Beetson, and it's fantastic to see patients like Jamie make a full recovery after what was an extremely difficult time, both at the point of his diagnosis through to his operation and recovery. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 16th of November. UK inflation hits 41-year high following surge in energy prices. An article written by Adam Robertson. Soaring energy bills sent UK inflation to its highest level for 41 years in October as the cost of living crisis continues to hit households, according to official figures. The Office for National Statistics, or ONS, revealed that inflation jumped to a higher-than-expected 11.1% in October, the highest rate since October 1981, and up from 10.1% in September as gas and electricity costs rocketed. Most economists had been expecting it to rise to 10.7%. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has warned that getting inflation under control would require tough but necessary decisions on tax and spending to help balance the books. He's set to lay out his autumn budget on Thursday. The ONS said gas prices have leapt nearly 130% higher over the past year, while electricity has risen by around 66%. Families were also hit by rising costs across a range of food items, which also pushed up the cost of living to eye-watering levels. The Scottish Greens have slammed the cruel and incompetent Tory government for runaway inflation. The party's economy spokesperson Maggie Chapman said... These are not just abstract figures, they represent people's expenses and well-being. They can be the difference between a household or family being able to eat or not. With temperatures falling and bills increasing, millions of people are looking at a long, cold winter, and with even more cuts expected to be announced in tomorrow's autumn budget, things are set to get even harder. The jump in inflation, the biggest leap since March to April, comes despite the government energy support, which had sought to limit Ofgem's energy price cap at around £2,500 a year. Ms Chapman continued, It's the cost of a reckless Tory Brexit and a cruel and incompetent government that's well aware of the pain it's inflicting, but simply doesn't care. If they cared, they would have spent the last 12 years investing in the infrastructure that would have prevented this situation. But they chose instead to reinflate the housing bubble and impose austerity. The Tories are not the answer to this economic crisis. We must choose and then create a better future that does not have us shackled to the disaster that is Westminster. Mr Hunt blamed the impact of the pandemic and Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine for the spike in prices. Chief Economist at the ONS Grant Fitzner said, Rising gas and electricity prices drove headline inflation to its highest level for over 40 years, despite the energy price guarantee. He added, Increases across a range of food items also pushed up inflation. 
These were partially offset by motor fuels, where average petrol prices fell on the month, while the price for diesel rose, taking the disparity in price between the two fuels to the highest on record. There was further evidence that costs facing businesses are rising more slowly, driven by crude oil and petroleum prices. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday, the 16th of November. Unison NHS members reject Scottish Government's final pay offer. An article written by Ninian Wilson. Scotland's largest health union announced yesterday that its NHS members have rejected the Scottish Government's final offer on pay. The announcement from Unison follows a two-week consultation which saw 61% of members vote to reject the pay rise. The current offer ranges from a 2% rise for the highest paid in Band 9 to an 11.32% rise for the lowest paid in Band 1. Unison Scotland's Health Committee will meet this week to discuss its next steps, the union said. Wilma Brown, chair of Unison's Health Committee, said members had voted in their thousands and their message is loud and clear, adding that the Scottish Government's pay offer just isn't good enough. She continued, ministers need to understand the anger of health staff who are working in an underfunded, understaffed NHS. These are unprecedented times and NHS staff are struggling to make ends meet. This should be a massive wake-up call to the Scottish Government. They need to come back to the negotiating table with an improved offer or prepare themselves for the first strikes in the NHS since devolution. Scotland's Health Secretary Hamza Youssef said he was disappointed by the decision of the union's members, adding that the record pay rise ensured the lowest paid received the highest uplift. He continued, I've always stressed that dialogue is essential and I reiterated my commitment to ongoing discussions to avoid strikes to trade unions just last week. The pay rise on the table for NHS Scotland staff would be the largest since devolution. Benefiting more than 160,000 employees, it would mean NHS Scotland nurses would remain the best paid in the UK. I remain grateful to all our health and social care staff, and we had to make difficult decisions in order to offer a record pay rise as we try to meet the challenge of recovering from the pandemic and the backlog of care needed. Matt McLaughlin, Unison Scotland's Head of Health, said, Nobody wants to take strike action, but without an improved pay offer, our members will be left with no choice. The ball is in the Scottish Government's court. We're calling on Hamza Youssef to come forward with an improved offer so our dedicated health workers can get on with delivering services. This follows news from earlier this month that the Royal College of Nursing voted to take industrial action for the first time in the trade union's 106-year history, a strike that will cover nurses across the UK. The union represents close to half a million nurses, with all NHS employers in Scotland being affected by the decision. An article written by Ninian Wilson. From the National, Thursday the 17th of November 2022, from the news section, Secondary school teachers vote to strike over pay dispute by Neil Purin. Members of a secondary school teaching union have voted to go on strike to push for an improved pay offer. A ballot of Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, SSTA, members saw 90% vote for strike action and a turnout of 62%. It comes after Scotland's largest teaching union, the EIS, 
set a date of November the 24th for its own strike. SSTU officials said they are considering a strike for the week beginning December the 5th. Trade union laws mean at least 14 days notice of a strike must be provided. SSTU General Secretary Seamus Searson said, The result is very good. We're pleased with the return that we got. It just shows the frustration of teachers. We've been trying to get this resolved since the beginning of the year. We haven't had a proper conversation about pay since August. Speaking last week, Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville said a teacher strike was not inevitable. She said, As a Scottish Government, we're absolutely determined to see what we can do to see if there's additional funding that we can provide to allow to COSLA to allow COSLA as employers to provide an enhanced pay offer. I very much hope teachers would be able to look at that offer, take it to its members and we could not have industrial action. The industrial action is not inevitable and I would absolutely urge, as we've done with all the trade union colleagues today, to keep that constructive dialogue and make sure we're doing everything we can to avoid that. A COSLA spokesperson said, Scottish local government values its entire workforce, of which teachers are a key part. Making an offer that is affordable enables councils to protect the whole of education services and ultimately improve outcomes for children and young people. Along with the Scottish Government, we are working closely and at pace to ensure a revised offer can be brought forward. We will remain in active discussions with our trade union partners. And that article is by Neil Puran. From the National, Thursday the 17th of November 2022, from the news section, TV journalist accosted by Qatar officials during live report, article by Adam Robertson, officials in Qatar have apologised after a journalist's live TV report was interrupted amid threats to break his camera. Danish journalist Ramis Tantholt was delivering his report for broadcaster TV2 with his camera crew next to a roundabout in Doha when footage shows Qatari officials driving a golf buggy approach. One of them tries to grab the camera and puts his hand over the lens, while, th- while two others also exit the buggy. The station said on its website, the team was bluntly told that if they didn't stop filming, the cameras would be destroyed. This is despite the fact that TV2's team had acquired the correct accreditations and reported from a public place. This comes amid mounting controversy surrounding the World Cup. Concerns about the country's treatment of gay people living in the country, as well as LGBTQ plus tourists, have been expressed for a long time. An ambassador for the World Cup described homosexuality as damage in the mind. The journalist said during the live report that they were live in Danish television and added, Mister, you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. Another clip shows the reporter displaying his accreditation to film there, which the officials refused to accept, saying he still needed permission. One of the officials grabbed the camera again, with Tant Holt approaching him and appearing to say something to the reporter, who said, You want to break the camera? Okay, you can break the camera. So you're threatening us by smashing the camera? The reporter has since confirmed on his social media that they had received an apology for the incident. He said, We now got an apology from Qatar International Media Office and from Qatar's Supreme Committee. This is what happened when we were broadcasting live for TV2 from a roundabout in Doha, but will it happen to other media as well? Match of the Day presenter Gary Lineker retweeted the clip with the caption, Bodes well. Tantalk replied, Indeed, 
camera is still safe though. And that article was by Adam Robertson. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.